If you have your copy of God's word, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I think one of the weirdest experiences that I have as I get older is walking into a room, looking around and not remembering why I went into that room. I don't know if you guys have experienced that feeling. If you are young enough that that hasn't happened to you, that's great. It will eventually. I blame my children for stealing all of my brain cells, uh, which is why I go into a room, I look around, I go, why am I here? I don't even remember, why am I here? Sometimes I think if we are honest with ourselves, we can feel that same feeling when we gather together in this room. We walk in and we kind of go through the motions and we think, wait, why am I here? What is the purpose of being together? What's the purpose of the church? And specifically, why did we plant 10 years ago? We were celebrating 10 years as a church the last few weeks, and we're going to have one more Sunday where we kind of highlight our 10-year anniversary as a church. But we're thinking through this reality of why are we even here to begin with? What, What are we doing? What's the purpose? And last Lord's Day, we looked at five different passions that the Apostle Paul had that led him to do the work of the ministry in sharing the gospel faithfully with those around him. He was on mission with passions to magnify God, to see and savor God's glory, to make disciples, to shepherd those disciples, to treasure Christ above all things. And so that really became our mission statement as a church. Why do we exist? We exist to magnify God, to spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding those disciples to love Jesus above all things. That's the goal of CBC. But you might be here from last Lord's Day to this Lord's Day. You might be saying, that's a great mission statement. That's a great idea. But how does that functionally work itself out? How do you live that out? If those are your passions, how do you attempt to see those passions lived out in your church? That's what we're going to look at this morning. I believe that there are four different priorities. Last week we looked at five different passions that Paul had. This week we're going to look at four different priorities that Paul had as he shepherded and pastored and planted local churches. He had four different priorities that became the four priorities that we have as a church family that we want to live out in order to accomplish the mission for why we exist. The first passion is, or the first priority rather, is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, which is where I want to read and then I want to ask God's blessing on our time together. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. This is the Apostle Paul's last letter, chronologically speaking, in the New Testament. This is just months before he is going to be killed. He's in prison right now. He's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith and a pastor that he uh, helped to um, stay in Ephesus, to pastor the church in Ephesus. And he writes these words, starting in verse 10. Now you... You followed my teaching. You followed my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of all of them, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, 
deceiving and being deceived. You, however, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and you've become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. These are the words of our gracious, awesome, and holy God. Let's ask his blessing on our time as we give careful attention to his words this morning. Father, we do ask that you would be gracious to us to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We need your help. We come dependent on you. We say with Samuel, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We do want to listen. And we want to live out these priorities in a way that our church would magnify God. So enable us as we, as we think through what it is that we are attempting to do because of what your word tells us. I pray that we would rely on your spirit every step of the way. That there would never be a day and never a moment where we would rely on ourselves to do this work of the ministry. May we just be faithful to depend on you, rely on you, and watch you through the word and through the spirit do the work. Free us now to receive your word, to hear and be doers of your word, and to be transformed because of our time together in your word. We pray it in your name. Amen. Four different priorities that the Apostle Paul had for the churches that he planted that enable us to live out those passions that he had last Lord's Day, that enable us to live out the, the mission of why we exist as a church. The first priority is this. Number one, preaching and teaching of the word of God. If we are going to live out the mission statement of Christ Bible Church, if we're going to live out these passions, then we must, number one, preach and teach the word of God. That is the only way that we will magnify God, spread a passion for his glory, make disciples, shepherd those disciples to value Jesus above all things. Without the word, we cannot do that. Paul is telling Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4, there are many around you in the culture who are looking to the culture, to opinions for their authority, for how to live their lives. But not you, Timothy. You look to the word. You live according to the word. You preach the word. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you 
Verse 2, preach the word. I, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus who's going to judge the living and the dead. Preach the word. Don't preach your own opinions. Don't preach your own ideas. Don't go to human reason. Don't go to human authority. Just speak God's words. That's all you need to do, Timothy. Just let God's word just wash over the souls of the people that are in your church. Why do we do that? Why are we dependent on God's word? Why do we preach and teach God's word? Why do we give 45, 50 minutes to opening God's word and just saying, thus saith the Lord? Why do we do that? Let me give you a couple reasons why we do that. Number one, because the word of God alone has the power to save. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. You know this passage of scripture. Romans chapter 10, Paul writes, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call, anyone who wants to follow Jesus, if you will call on his name, you will be saved. But then he says this, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, the Lord has, who has believed our report. But then verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So faith comes from the word of Christ. The word of Christ has to go forth. The word of God has to be shared, has to be spread. And once the word goes out, the word alone has the power to save. The Bible is our sole authority because it alone has the power to save. We preach the Bible because it alone has the power to save. A second reason we preach the Bible, it alone has the power to sanctify. It has the power to sanctify. You know John 17, 17. You can write these verses down. And uh, just, again, by way of reminder, if you were here for the very first time, we have been going to the book of Mark. We've been studying verse by verse through the book of Mark. This is a little bit of a different uh, sermon, a little mini sermon series because of our 10-year anniversary that we are enjoying together, just reminiscing and being reminded of why we're here. Um, so we're going all over the place in the Bible, but normally we just hunker down in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, but here we're, we're kind of moving all over the place. So just write down a bunch of these verses. You can look them up on your own time. But John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, Jesus says, your word is truth. So how are we sanctified? How are we saved? The word of God, how are we sanctified? the word of God. We preach the word because it alone has the power to save. It has the power to sanctify. Number three, because when the Bible speaks, we preach the word because when the Bible speaks, God speaks. We just read it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God. God is the one who wrote these words. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is God speaking. And in the Bible, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So many people... Specifically in churches today in America, in kind of modern evangelicalism, so many people want encounters, experiences. Peter had those. 
2 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about being on the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Jesus transfigured, which we'll get to in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Peter saw Jesus transfigured. He heard God the Father speak audibly. And then he says, comparing that to this book, comparing that experience to this book, he says this book is more sure than that encounter. If you were to ask Peter, which would you rather have? Which should I rather have? Being on a mountaintop with Jesus in person, hearing the Father speak, seeing Jesus' glory, or opening my Bible in the morning and reading? Peter would say, oh, open your Bible in the morning and read. That goes so counter to everything that the evangelical church in America stands for. We want experiences. We want to conjure up emotions. We want encounters. That's a huge buzzword in evangelicalism today. We want encounters with God. And Peter says, no, go to the word because your eyes can deceive you. Your emotions can deceive you. If you are encountering something, you might not remember it correctly. You might not understand it correctly. But here, it's written down. It's permanent. It's objective. You can go back to it time and time again. So what the church needs is not TED Talks about Jesus on Sunday mornings. The church needs faithful men to open this book and say, thus saith the Lord. That's what we attempt to do every Lord's Day. Why do, we, why do we do this? Because only the word of God, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces as far as the divisions of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This book is different than every other book because every other book you read it, whereas this book reads you. Psalm 19, you can just write it down. Go look it up on your own time this week. Only God's word is perfect, restoring the soul. Only God's word is sure, making wise the simple. Only God's word is right, rejoicing the eyes. Only God's word is pure, enlightening the eyes. Only God's word is clean, enduring forever. Only God's word is true and righteous altogether. God's word alone is more desirable than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. By God's word alone, believers are warned of sin and judgment. And in keeping God's word, there is great reward. Only God's word can keep believers from presumptuous sin and acquit you of hidden faults and great transgression. Only God's word enables us to rule over sin and be blameless. Only God's word exists in these ways, in these realities alone. No other book has the power. No other human reason has those uh, attributes. Isaiah 55, 11, only God's word holds the promise that it will not return void. My words return void. My words are feeble, frail, failing. Only God's word will not return void. The fourth and final reason that we let the word of God sound forth every Lord's day is because when obeyed, the word of God brings fruit and blessing. When obeyed, the word of God brings fruit and blessing. So we preach the word of God because it has the power to save. It has the power to sanctify. When the Bible, speak, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And because, number four, when obeyed, the word of God brings fruit and blessing. You could go to Psalm 1. The blessings of living according to the word of God, meditating on the word day and night. You could go to Psalm 119 to see the blessings of obedience. As one pastor had said, this book will keep you from sin 
or sin will keep you from this book. But as we open it, and as we preach it, we don't want to just grow our head knowledge, as we say all the time during our announcements. We don't want to grow a head knowledge. We want to live differently. It's not enough to just come and sit and listen. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 24 gives us the warning. Do not merely be hearers of the word and delude yourselves, deceive yourselves. No, you must be hearers and then doers of the word. You realize the Bible has more to say about the listener's responsibility in hearing the word of God than it has to say about the preacher's responsibility of preaching the word of God? I say this all the time. Once we get to Sunday morning, you are doing way more work than I'm doing. I did all my work this week, and now I just get the joy of sharing of the glory of God. But now it's time for you to do the work of listening, of thinking through how am I supposed to apply these things? I love the way Spurgeon says it. We are told that men ought not to preach without preparation. Amen and amen. Granted, he says. I shouldn't just get up here and go, hmm, what should I think, what should I uh, preach on? Whatever I'm feeling today, I'll preach on that. No, 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 I should prepare. But, he continues, we add that men ought not to hear without preparation. Which do you think needs the most preparation? The sower or the ground? I would have the sower come with clean hands, but I would have the ground well plowed and harrowed and well turned over and the clods broken before the seed comes in. It seems to me that there is more preparation needed by the ground than by the sower, more by the hearer than by the preacher. So I always say, Sunday starts on Saturday night. How did you prepare last night to hear the word of God this morning? How did you prepare this morning to hear the word of God preached? Hell is filled with people who have listened to hundreds and hundreds of sermons. But they came to those sermons with careless hearts that were not prepared, that were not ready to receive. Richard Baxter, old Puritan pastor, says, Come not to hear with a careless heart, as if it were to hear a mere a matter that little concerned you, but come with a sense of the unspeakable weight, necessity, and consequence of the holy word which you are to hear. And when you understand how much you are concerned in it and truly love it as the word of life, it will greatly help your understanding of every particular truth. That which a man loveth not and perceiveth no necessity of, he will hear with so little regard and heed that it will make no considerable impression on his mind. How do you prepare your heart to hear the word of God? Do you come needy? Do you come dependent? Do you come as a beggar ready to be filled? J. Adams says, when you go to hear a sermon, you must be concerned about one thing. What does God have to say to me? Focus on God. See, preaching as a transaction, not merely between yourself and the preacher, but between yourself and God. The preacher is a means to that end. Go expecting to hear a word from God that, when obeyed, will change your life.
We were to ask Paul, how do you live out those passions? How are, to, how are you going to make those passions a reality in your church? I think he would say, number one, we are going to start with the priority of preaching and teaching the word of God. And that's a priority is at our church, we preach and we teach the word of God. Number two, second priority. Number two, if we are going to magnify God, spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding those disciples to value Jesus above all things. Number two, we are going to worship the Lord with gravity and gladness. Worship the Lord with gravity and gladness and gladness. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Worship the Lord with gravity and gladness. Now, our entire lives are worship to the Lord. Romans chapter 12. Uh, Therefore, I urge you, beloved, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. So this is our spiritual acceptable worship to God. All of life is worship First so Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, you know it. Whether you eat or drink, even in the most mundane tasks, do all to the glory of God. So all of life is worship. That's why I really try as often as I can when I say the word worship, I always say worship through something because it's so easy to just equate worship equals singing. So I always try to say worship through song, worship through prayer, worship through preaching, worship through the reading of God's word. We are worshiping the Lord right now. We're saying, God, you are more satisfying than going somewhere else in this moment. Your word is more satisfying than going somewhere else. So worship is anything that you are doing in obedience to God, finding your satisfaction in him alone. But there also is worship through song. There's worship through singing. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So all of life is worship. However, you are choosing to worship the Lord or you're choosing to worship yourself. Those are the only two possibilities, ultimately. But Paul says there are aspects of worship in a church service where we are to sing the word of God with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The word is supposed to be so indwelling us that it just bleeds out of us through song. Why sing? Why not just spend more time preaching? Why do we spend half of our service singing and half of our service preaching? Why not just preach? I love the way one pastor says it. Singing is the Christian's way of saying, God is so real that thinking will not suffice. There must be a deep feeling and talking will not suffice. There must be singing. This is what we talked about last Lord's Day. That aspect of Jonathan Edwards attempting to raise the affections of his hearers. Singing enables us to love and desire Jesus. Singing is so powerful. You remember Psalm 42 David says that he is in such turmoil. He is in such despair. Hope in God. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you in despair? Hope in God. And he's struggling and he's fighting. And there's no resolution in Psalm 42. But he does say, I remember. In the midst of my turmoil, in the midst of my distress, I remember and I call back to remembrance how I used to go with the crowd, with a voice of thanksgiving, with a shout of joy. Shout of joy, he remembered singing 
in the moments where he was in down cast, the moments where he was in down cast, in despair, and he goes to sing God, and he goes real. God was real in those moments. Realize what we just did. Realize what we just did. It might enable one of you. Might enable one of you during this week as you look back on that. It might enable one of you to say. It might enable one of you to say. Jesus. It might say yes. Jesus. It might enable you to remember God was real here tonight with us. He has been here tonight with us. It might enable you in the trial that you're willing to say, God, I know you're good. I trust you. Souls are ushered from heaven. Souls are ushered from heaven. Souls are ushered from heaven. Souls are ushered even as we sing. So singing is vitally important. Singing is vitally important. I love how Paul gives us such a variety of spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. In the Apostle Paul's mind, in the Apostle Paul's mind, sing some hymns, sing songs, sing some hymns, do whatever whatever in the variety, as long as it is flowing, Lord, let the word Lord, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Let that come out in your song. And let that come out in your songs. So, so we have some distinctives as how we, have some distinctives as how we, as how we live in this house. Desire. We have some desire. Just like we have reasons. Just like we have reasons why we preach the word of God. We have desire as we Let me give you just a couple of them. Let me give you just a couple of them. We desire for worship. We desire for worship to be to be scripture saturated, Bible and not Bible based. Worship through songs. Worship through songs. Scripture saturated, and not just Bible based. Say based on a movie or say based on a true story. Those movies are typically like those movies are typically like twenty percent. And the rest is artistic license. And the rest is artistic license. We don't want to do that with worship. We don't want to do that with worship. We don't want to take one verse in the imagination and our own imagination and into our own opinions and our own opinions and our own reason. Let the word we just want to let the word God be saturated. We want to be scripture saturated. Don't sing songs. Don't sing songs that are so loose, that are so loose with their truthfulness. Replace God's name. Replace God's name in that song with your spouse's name. That that means it doesn't cut. That means it doesn't cut it to be sung at CBC. You can't sing holy. You can't sing holy, holy, holy. Hannah Carmichael Almighty. My wife. I think she's the most my wife and the entire universe, amazing woman in the entire universe. Those words don't those words don't fit her. Quasi blast. Quasi blast. She's not to say that she's not trained the way God is. Transcendently, thrice holy, mighty. She's not all mighty. that come straight from Scripture. Grand view of who God is. Grand view. Last week, magnifying God. We want songs that only work with God alone. Secondly, not only scripture-saturated songs, we want, number two, gravity and gladness. We want gravity and gladness. We desire gravity in our worship services, not flippancy. We want holy ground moments. We know God is in this place. We don't want to casually worship him. Light-hearted, casual Flippant worship. Those three words, lighthearted, casual, and flippant, are three of my least favorite words. We don't want that. We want sober gravity as we come before the Lord. You rarely ever see casual worship in the Bible. And when you do, the casual worshipers are usually dead after a few verses. Right? You know this. Nadab and Abihu, casual worship, God strikes them down. King Uzziah. Casual worship in the temple, God strikes him down. Ananias and Sapphira, casual worship and offering land to the Lord, God strikes them down. Instead of that, we want 
gravity. Moses takes off, of his, off his shoes because he's on holy ground. Israel fears God. Isaiah shakes and stands terrified and undone. Isaiah chapter 6, woe is me. Job puts his hand over his lips. I can't even attempt to speak. John falls down like a dead man in the presence of the one whom he loved, Jesus Christ in Revelation 1. Even the elders and the angels in heaven are falling down. They're worshiping. They can't even show their faces. They cover their faces. Casual worship of the living, true, holy, sovereign God of the universe just doesn't exist. We don't ever want to get used to God. We want a holy hush as we enter his presence. In doing this, we want to be radically God-centered and not man-centered. But we don't want just gravity. We want gravity and gladness. We want sobriety and satisfaction. These aren't bad words. They're bad only on their own. If all you do is look at the gravity and you don't have serious joy because of that gravity, then you're staring at only one aspect of who God is and how he's welcomed you. If our, if our worship services just turn into some funeral dirge, we've done it incorrectly. But also, if our worship services just go simply to gladness and our worship services turn into you know, Christian jazzercise, then we've also equally done it wrong. We want both, gravity and gladness together. And if you think of those two words in your mind as you read the Bible, you'll see gravity and gladness everywhere. You'll see these two things together everywhere. Isaiah chapter 34 and 35 do this. Isaiah 34 is an incredibly dark, horrific text of pure gravity. And then Isaiah 35 is pure gladness. I think one of my favorite verses that so succinctly captures this idea of gravity and gladness is Psalm 2, verse 11. The psalmist says, Worship the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Seriousness is not at odds with satisfaction and joy. They go together. And by the way, this doesn't just have to do with singing. This should be the way that we live our lives. Gravity and gladness should so be woven together in life, specifically in the leadership of our church to set the tone of our church, that there is no way that you could walk in here with carelessness and not be sobered up. Or there's no way you would walk in here with burdens and not let those burdens be sweetly lifted off of your souls. We want gravity and gladness. Thirdly, in our singing, in our worship through song, we want undistracting excellence. We want undistracting excellence. We don't want to play badly, right? We don't want to just say, well, it doesn't matter. Let's just play badly. Let's sing badly. No, we want to sing well. But we also don't want to sing in such a way and play in such a way where it's distractingly excellent. You know, those people that you watch playing and they're good and they know they're good and it just becomes a gig. I just praise the Lord because even as I was thinking through these things, I know no one who leads worship through song up here on Sunday mornings who does this. I know nobody who does this, who says, I'm good, I know I'm good, and I want to show off. No one does that up here. We don't want distracting players on either side. We don't want some really bad players. We don't want some insanely good players that know they're good and, and just show off in their playing. No, we want undistracting excellence. We want to be lingering in the presence of God. We don't want to just move quickly through singing. 
That's why we try to do six to eight songs on a Sunday morning because we want to sing and we want to have a good portion of that be just song after song after song after song, not cut up. And the main instrument of all that we do, people have asked me that before. What's your main sound? What's your main vibe? Uh, you know, are you um, old, old school? Are you trying to do like um, uh, organs? Are you trying to do electric guitars? Are you trying to do um, drums? What are you trying to do? I said, the main instrument that we try to live out is the voice. That's the main instrument. We just want to live out worshiping the Lord and singing and letting our voices, just like Paul says in Colossians chapter three, speaking to one another with psalms and with hymns and with spiritual songs. That's what we want to do. A third aspect of what we attempt to do in our priorities of walking together in living out the mission of Christ Bible Church. Number three, so number one, to live out the mission of Christ Bible Church, we want to preach and teach the word of God. Number two, we want to worship the Lord with gravity and gladness. Number three, we want to walk together in a community of gospel grace. Walk together in a community of gospel grace. Turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter one. We want to walk together in a community of gospel grace. We don't just gather on Sundays, hear the word of God, sing the word of God, and then say, okay, we'll see you next week. No, we live life together. We make space throughout the week to be together. We live life together. We bear one another's burdens. There are so many one another passages in the Bible. There are about 60 of them, of things that we need to do together as we live life together. We live the one another's together. Let me give you just a couple of them. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. We counsel one another. Galatians chapter six, verses one through two, we bear one another's burdens. Romans chapter 12, verse 15, we weep with one another. We rejoice with one another. And then 1 John chapter one, verse six, we have fellowship with one another because we confess sin with one another. Verse six, if we say we have no fellowship with him, if we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the lights, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. James chapter five, verse 16 says something similar. Confess your sins one to another, Pray for one another so that you may be healed. And not in a physical healing sense, though that can happen, but in a spiritual sense. We are to confess with one another, pray with one another, take each other to the cross, live life together and walk with one another. All of this takes living together in a community of gospel grace. What is the culture of our church? We always say the DNA of our church. What's the DNA of our church? Because the church's culture reveals whatever the people most deeply believe. The way we interact with one another reveals whatever we most deeply believe. We can get all the doctrinal things right and we can still deny the faith through our actions. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 4 through 8? The Apostle Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his own household, he is worse than a non-believer and he has denied the faith. If anyone does not provide for his own household, 
He has denied the faith. So not denying the faith intellectually, doctrinally, theologically. Denying the faith can be a theological failure, yes, but it can also be a practical failure. We said this a few months ago, getting little things right, but the big things wrong. That would be not walking in a gospel community where you are doctrinally living out what you say you believe. We so long for the beauty of Christ to shape every aspect of our church, not just the content of our teaching, but the quality and the flavor of our relationships together. If done correctly, church should be the place that we sprint to when we are at our worst. Not the place that we avoid when we until we've gotten everything together. No, we want this to be a place where you run to get help, to be given aid in the midst of your burdens and trials. The gospel should be so embodied in our church that it shapes our relationships and our fellowship because we are wholly confident in Christ's love for us and in his righteousness being ours. We don't have to go around justifying ourselves. We don't have to be confident in our own good works. We just say, God, you are our righteousness. That changes the way that we live with one another. A gospel community lived out just as God's approval of me alone is enough. I have his approval. That's enough. I don't need your approval. God has welcomed me and I want to give a welcome to you. But I wonder if you're here this morning and you know that. You, maybe you wonder, has God welcomed me? Or maybe you're here this morning and you say, I know God did welcome me and now I think he regrets it. I think he looks at me now and he goes, you are such a mess. I should never have died for you. Do you think that Jesus regrets getting involved with you? I can show you biblically that he doesn't. He has never regretted it. He will never regret it. In fact, he loves when high maintenance, sinful people move towards him. That lights him up. He's not rolling his eyes, looking at you saying, oh my word, it's you again. He's not fed up with you. He's not feeling overwhelmed by your problems. He's moving towards you. And so we want to live that out in our church community. If you are struggling with sin and you say, I'm struggling, here it is. We greet that sin with kindness. There will be a time and a place for confronting sin if you're unwilling to do that. But if you're willing to do that, We want this place to be a place that is so full of walking together at the foot of the cross where a gospel community is developed. We know that the scriptures say from Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. It just keeps coming. That's what we want to give to one another, grace upon grace. I think often people think that as they walk with the Lord, maturity in the Christian life equals I need less of Jesus. I needed a lot of him when I was a baby Christian and I need less of him now because I'm growing. I think the exact opposite is, is true. The more mature you are in your faith, the more dependent you know you are on Jesus. The more you need him and the more you run to him. You allow his grace to transform you. You might be here feeling that you are God forsaken for some reason Various reasons might pop up. Maybe the suffering you're going through, the trials you're going through, the sin you're struggling with, and you just feel like God doesn't want me anymore. You show up here and you feel like you need to shape up, try harder, be better, or or else. You feel like you're living some plan B version of your life because you can't live out God's plan A for your life. But my friends, I'm here to tell you that you are not 
forsaken by God. He's moving towards you in love and mercy and compassion and kindness. You are right in the middle of his plan A for your life. If you would but receive him, receive his yoke that is easy and light. Whatever is wrong in you is far outweighed by what is right in Jesus. There is more grace in him than there ever will be guilt in you. And he's better at saving than you are at sinning. So encourage one another with these realities. This is why we live life together. We're living life together to remind each other of that. You can be totally vulnerable and transparent and say, I'm a failure and I don't have any of it together. And no one's going to look at you at this church and say, what's wrong with you? Or we're going to say, me too, join the club. That's why we need Jesus. And if we can live out gospel community and gospel fellowship with one another, it will change everything about the way that we live out our church family and our fellowship together. Encourage one another. I have never met anyone in my life who is too encouraged in Christ. Never. And I never will. We are not in danger of being too encouraged in him. That's why we live life together. That's why we intentionally give space as much as we can in our weeks and in our calendars to just live life together. That's why we have our small, small groups. We have our small groups that meet at our homes or Bible studies. And then we have our discipleship groups, the two to three to four people that just get together for an hour every week and just say, here's the worst thing I did this week. Will you pray for me? Take me to Jesus. And then you study the scriptures and you, you follow the Lord together. That's the kind of walk that we want together. We want to live transparently together. Fourth and finally, the priority that, that Paul had in living out the passions that he had that we looked at last Lord's Day, he has four priorities for how you live these things out. Number one, if you're going to live out the mission of the church, you need to preach and teach the word of God. Number two, you need to worship the Lord with gravity and gladness. Number three, you need to walk together in a community of gospel grace. And number four, and finally, you need to be a faithful witness of the glory of God. Turn to Matthew 28 and we'll end our time here. Matthew 28, you must be a faithful witness of the glory of God. You know this section, this is the Great Commission. Matthew writes, verse 16, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. I love that verse. Some were doubtful. That tells me, number one, the Bible wasn't tampered with uh, because if it was, it wouldn't, that sentence wouldn't probably be here, probably be taken out because you want it to look like everybody believed and it was enough. This rings true in the human heart and the way that we struggle in life with doubting. If you have doubts, God is gracious with those doubts. I also love that verse because it tells me that though they see the resurrected Jesus, it's still not enough to convince them. So all these people that say, if I could just see Jesus, if I could just see a sign, if I could just have an encounter, it would be enough. This verse says, no, you would still be doubting. Jesus says, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. At this point, it really doesn't matter what he says next. Because if all authority has been given to him, then whatever he's about to ask, number one, we have to do it. We can't say no to it. But number two, it's impossible for it to fail. I love this about this text. There's a positive and a negative aspect to Christ's authority here. He says, all authority has been given to me and I'm going to give you a task. And because all authority has been given, you can't say no. 
But secondly, your mission will not fail. This is the bookend of what he said in Matthew 16. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So go, make disciples because the gates of hell can't stand a chance. Make disciples. Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Notice, I think so often people want to do their best in just showing as I abstain from sin, the world will notice me and be saved. And I would say good. It's good to abstain from sin. Yes, amen and amen. But you also need to speak up. Speak up as is appropriate in your relationship. Share Christ. Don't just think I'm going to abstain from sin and that's going to lead people to salvation. Get involved in their life. Yes, abstain from sin, but get involved in their life. Show them that you're different and then tell them why. And then lead them. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Main verb, go make disciples. How do we do that? We go. Main verb is make disciples. We do that in three ways. Go, baptize, and teach. And then he says, behold, I'm, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you always. He's everywhere, Always. He's with us as we go out and we do this work of missions. How, how are you doing in your witness for the Lord? How are you doing in evangelism? If it's constant intake and no outflow, uh, that's the Dead Sea, right? The Dead Sea has no outlet and water just flows into it and then things die. If you only have the, the word of God flowing into you and no outflow to anybody else, your soul will just shrivel up. You might say, well, I'm just not gifted in this. I don't know how to do it. I know a couple of facts about you biblically. I know, number one, Psalm, 30, Psalm 139, you have been uniquely designed by God and gifted by God for God's service to make disciples. You can do it. You've been uniquely designed by him to do it. And then secondly, you've been uniquely placed. You were placed here in this moment, in this time, for this exact purpose, to go and to make disciples. So how do we live out our mission? We preach and teach the word of God. We worship the Lord with gravity and gladness. We walk together in a community of gospel grace and we are faithful witnesses of the glory of God. Our mission as a church is to magnify God, to spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all things. And if you were to say, that's a really good mission statement. I like it. I agree with that. How do you then accomplish that? I would say just four words. Word, worship, walk, and witness. That's how we live out our mission as a church. We exist for a specific reason, and this is what we do to make that existence happen. It's by the preaching and teaching of God's word, through the worship of him, through all we do, but specifically through songs that are filled with gravity and gladness as we adore him. We seek to present every man mature and complete in Christ as they walk with him in a gospel-shaped community. And we want to be a witness to everyone about the good news of Jesus Christ and his amazing grace for sinners like you and like me. That's why we're here. That's why we planted 10 years ago. That's why we do what we do. That's how we do what we do. That's what we've been doing for the last 10 years. And Lord willing, that's what we'll do for the next 10 years and beyond. Father, we thank you so much for your word that instructs us, that counsels us, that directs us, that guides us, that leads us into an understanding of how we are to live out the ministry that you've called us to. So enable us as we live out these four priorities through the word, through worship, through our walk, and through our witness to glorify you 
to magnify your name and spread a passion for your glory, how great you are, by making disciples and then shepherding them to say that Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. We pray it in your precious and holy name. Amen.